Genesis 16. Genesis 16. I'm so excited about the sermon this morning, but that worship was very, very edifying. So it's always been amazing to me as I read the Bible at how many different levels that God is dealing with in one short segment. You know, he never just kind of deals with one thing. He's always got multiple layers that he's dealing with. And what we're going to be looking at this morning in Genesis 16 is, is like that. The familiar story of Hagar is told, and yet there's so much more going on behind the scenes of poor Hagar, collapsed in her proud despair, as Spurgeon called it, There are at least two major sections to chapter 16. Remember, it's a narrative now, so we're not bearing down on just individual words or or, uh, basic commands in Scripture like a hortatory section of Scripture that you'd find in the New Testament epistles. It's a narrative, so it's a story. It's a big story. And the first section is the discussion or a discussion between Sarai and Abram. And that is in verses 1 through 6. They have a little interchange with each other. But then secondly, there's a discussion between the angel of the Lord and Hagar. And that is followed or found in uh, verses 7 through 16. So those are the two major sections. But even beyond those two major divisions, there's so much going on in the individual lives and hearts of the people in this story. Today, I'd like to look at each of the characters and consider those underlying sentiments and struggles, issues that are common to actually all of us at one time or another. And finally, I'd like to lift high the angel of the Lord in his manifest mercy that's displayed through this narrative. So far, we've traced Abram's walk with God and his journey of faith as he face setbacks and and grown through each of those setbacks and we see his faith is developing. Um, It is not perfect, it is not even mature yet as we'll see in this chapter here but he still has been growing. Arthur Pink said this, first Abraham's faith had to overcome the ties of nature because God called him Uh, to leave his country and his kindred. Then, shortly after he actually arrived in Canaan, his faith was tried by the stress of circumstances, right? His great epic famine failure. (laughs) And, And Abram feared that the friction between his herdsmen and the herdsmen of his nephew might lead to strife. And that was the next great trial that he had that tested his love for his nephew and the love of the brethren, where he said, you choose out what you want, and I'll go where you don't go. Then Lot had been captured by a powerful warrior, but Abraham rushed to his rescue and delivered him from the five kings. And subsequently, there is a testing of his greed. Would he be greedy when the king of Sodom tried to offer him the reward for overcoming the five kings? And he refused. He said, I'm not taking anything from you. Nothing. So he passed that test. Now he's tested by a suggestion from his wife. I'll tell you, as we look at Abraham's life, there's so much that we can glean for our own lives out of this. I'd like to read chapter 16 for you so you can see what we're talking about today. Now Sarai, Abraham's wife, had borne him no children, and she had an Egyptian maid whose name was Hagar. So Sarai said to Abram, Now behold, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Please go into my maid. Perhaps I will obtain children through her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. After Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Abram's wife Sarai took Hagar the Egyptian, her maid, and gave her to her husband, Abram, as his wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived, and when she saw that she had conceived, her mistress was despised in her sight. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be upon you. I gave my maid 
into your arms, but when she saw that she had conceived, I was despised in her sight. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your maid is in your power. Do to her what is good in your sight. So Sarai treated her harshly, and she fled from her presence. That means Hagar fled from her presence. Now the angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, by the spring on her way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, Sarah's maid, where have you come from and where are you going? And she said, I'm fleeing from the presence of my mistress, Sarai. And then the angel of the Lord said to her, Return to your mistress and submit yourself to her authority. Moreover, the angel of the Lord said to her, I will greatly multiply your descendants so that they too will be many, uh, will be too many to count. And the angel of the Lord said to her further, Behold, you are with child and you will bear a son and you shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord has given heed to your affliction. He will be a wild donkey of a man, and his hand will be against everyone, and everyone's hand will be against him, and he will live to the east of all his brothers. And then she came. Uh, Then she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, You are a God who sees. For she said, Have I even remained alive here after seeing him? Therefore the well called Berlahai Roy, behold, is between Kadesh and Barad. So Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called the name of his son whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. And Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this account of one of the descendants of Abraham, not the son of promise, but still the son of Abraham. And Lord, we would pray that you would open our own hearts and eyes to these truths and that we would learn from them. We understand that we can take Old Testament narratives and stories and that we can glean from them things for our own walk with you that we can take application and principles from these stories. And Father, I pray today that these application and principles would be made clear and that you would apply them to our hearts as you see fit and that we would be willing to accept them and uh, practice them. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, first we're going to look at Sarai's assertiveness and The first thing that we see in chapter 16, verse 1, is that she is barren. She is still without a child. Now, it's been 10 years since they arrived in the land of Canaan, and 10 years since the initial covenant that God made with Abram, and that is a long time to wait. Abram was 75 years old. Now he's 85 years old, 86 years old. And um, when you're on that end of the spectrum, 10 years is a long time, a long time. Now, she was aware of Yahweh's promise to Abram, and Abram's disgrace in not having an heir was her disgrace. They were one flesh. And in that culture, you understand that having children was a sign of God's blessing upon you, but not having children was a curse. And so she had to bear that. And she had been bearing that for many years now. In verse 2, Sarai said to Abram, Now behold, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Please go into my maid. Perhaps I will obtain children through her. Or perhaps I will raise up. Or perhaps I will be built up through Hagar. She laid the blame of her childlessness on Yahweh, didn't she? She said, it is he that has closed my womb. She recognized the sovereignty of God, 
in this action because God is the one who opens and closes the womb. Genesis 20.18, in another situation where Abraham had an epic fail, it was with King Abimelech, where he said again that Sarai was his sister. He rescues Sarai from uh, becoming his wife, King Abimelech's wife, and it's at that time we read in verse 18 of chapter 20, the Lord closed fast all the wombs of the household of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. Obviously, God has something to do with the womb. We also read of Job uh, in his defense. He's defending his integrity in Job 31. And in verse 15, we see the end of this argument. He lets us in on his understanding of God's work in the womb. He says this, quote, Did not he, God, who made me in the womb, make him? And the same one fashion us in the womb. Just get the gist of what he's saying here, that every child in the womb is a creation of God. We often think of them as our creation, right? God is involved in the womb And so she turns this on Yahweh. And she says, now behold, look, look at this. Okay, behold. She didn't have to say behold. Now look at this. Yahweh has shut my womb from bearing children. It was a statement of fact, and it was true, but there seems to be a belligerent tone in her words. Almost as if telling God, Because you've withheld children from me, I'm driven to do this. Give my maid to him to bear children. So she is barren. She is aware of Yahweh's promise to Abraham that he would have an heir, but he didn't have one, and it's been 10 years running. And she blamed Yahweh because he had shut her womb and hadn't given her children. And so she took matters into her own hands. How easy it is when we don't see God fulfilling what we believe him to have promised to take this attitude that's all too common. God helps those who help themselves. I had a friend of mine in Bible school, and it came to be Christmas break. And um, he lived in Minnesota, as did I. I don't know what happened. I think I went back or I was staying there or whatever. I wasn't driving back to Minnesota. He didn't have a car. And he said, I've been praying that I want to go to Minnesota for Christmas. And I said, how are you going to get there? He said, I don't know. But if somebody doesn't give me a ride, I'm going to hitchhike. And I just thought about that for a long while. It was like, okay, I'm praying that God's going to do this. But if he doesn't do it, I can take care of this thing. I got it covered. That's the way we often operate, if truth be told. We can pray and pray and pray, and when God doesn't answer, we take things into our own hands. It's very, very common. Instead of being ones who, Hebrews 6.12 say, through faith and patience inherit the promises. Through faith and patience Sarai went out from a recognition of God's sovereignty over the womb. She she admitted that. She knew his sovereignty and yet quickly turned to her own ways to solve the problem of Abram's missing heir. In retrospect, we can see her own vain human uh, reasoning coupled possibly with self-deception as it triumphed over her faith and Abraham's as well because he acquiesced. And one thing that happens when we uh, stop trusting God, people, is no matter how reasonable our lack of trust seems to us, we tend to blame God and others. That's why we go off on our own. He's not acting on our behalf quickly enough. So she also had been named, or she hadn't been named, in the Abrahamic covenant. Do you? You know, you can look back on Genesis 12, 1 through 3, and you don't see Sarai's name anywhere. You see Abram's name, right? And even God's word to Abram when he suggested Eliezer be one who of his own household would become his heir 
because he was trying to figure out God's will in this thing, and he didn't have any kids, so he says, hey, take my servant Eliezer, he's one of my own household, and let's make him the heir. Does that work? God said, no. No, one from your own body, he will be your heir. Well, when he said one from your own body, he didn't use Sarai's name either. He just said one from his own body. Abram was the one in focus here, not Sarai. And maybe she could have reasoned the heir could come from another woman and Abram as a father, and it'd still be his heir. Hebrews 16.2 has it. Perhaps I will be built up by her. Perhaps this is the way through my maid. Now, it was not a unheard of culturally. It was acceptable practice, and, and many did it. There were surrogates who provided children who were then legally brought into the family, and would build up their families in this way. So it wasn't against cultural norms, but it definitely was against God's plan. And we see what going out on her own brought to her and going out and stopping our trust in God often brings the same. She became bitter. She got bitter afterwards. When Hagar despised her, she brought the issue to Abram to judge injustice. And the culture of the time, as well as God's word, protects a wife in such a situation from being despised. Did you know that, ladies? In Proverbs 30, verses 21 through 23, it reads this. Under three things, the earth quakes. And under the fourth, it cannot bear up. Under a slave, when he becomes a king... And a fool when he is satisfied with food, and under an unloved woman when she gets a husband, and finally the fourth, when a maidservant when she supplants her mistress. The maidservant is not to supplant her mistress. There is rights inherent with being a wife. Sarai could not see herself as the problem. First she blames God. Then she blames her husband. Finally, she calls on Yahweh to be her judge as a witness in the case. And this woman is grasping at straws, so to speak. And in the end, Sarai became harsh, and she treated Hagar badly, didn't she? She blamed Abram, called on Yahweh. And if Abram wouldn't provide her protection like he should... She hopes Yahweh will, but in the end, she became harsh. Now, secondly, I want to look at Abram, because Abram completely wimped out. This is a failure on Abram's part. In verses 5 and 6, Sarai said to Abram, may the wrong done me be upon you. I gave my maid into your arms but when she saw that she had conceived, I was despised in her sight, and may the Lord judge between me and you. But Abram said to Sarai, notice he, there's a but there that's contrastive. Instead of coming to her aid and protecting her and, and seeking justice for her, it says, but, this is what he did, behold, your maid's in your own power. Do to her what's good in your sight. Don't want nothing to do with this. That's amazing when you think about it. Through this study, I've come to a deeper perspective on Abram's relationship with Sarai. How about you? Say you're my sister. Twice. Putting her in harm's way. Rejecting the fact that even though she may have misstepped in suggesting Sarai be a surrogate, when, when Sarai was despised or thought little of, by this snippet of an Egyptian servant, right? I mean, you've you got to understand these things. When you've got a mistress and you've got a servant, she's a snippet. She's not very valuable. I'm sorry. She's not as valuable as a wife, but when she brings it to Abram, he says, 
I don't want to hear about it. Leave me alone. But this should also give us a lot of comfort, okay? Listen to this. Because Abram is called the friend of God, even in light of this and all of his other failures, he ends up being called the friend of God. And Sarah is held up as an example of humble submission because she obeyed Abraham and called him Lord, according to Peter, chapter 3. Friends, do we sometimes get the cart before the horse and think less of ourselves than God thinks of us? We are on an escalator. We are being transformed into the image of God. Remember who you are in Christ. Do you fail on a daily daily basis? Of course we do. We are sinners. Never forget you're sinful. That's why my my sermon when I talked about uh, sola fide, and I said righteousness is a declaration by God about us. Nothing intrinsically changes in us. But there is a transformation that begins to take place when he declares us righteous. That's called sanctification. And day by day, we're being transformed into the image of the Son of God, Jesus Christ. But we're declared righteous. It's not our righteousness. That's important, right? So remember that this couple, with all their hiccups, They had less than a stellar relationship, right? I mean, can you imagine the discussion that went on? I'm sure it was not quiet, right? Where they're talking to each other like, you know, we read the Bible. I'm sure that there was some heated words here. And yet their story, being marred by human frailty and sin, he is still the friend of God. Wow. Be encouraged by that. Now, The second area here is he listened to the voice of Sarah. We're told that he listened to what she had to say to him, following in Adam's footsteps who listened to the voice of his wife. Not a good thing. Things didn't go well for either one, right? Now, Now, let me square this away here. To listen in the Hebrew is understand, uh, understood to mean, that word listen means to hear intelligently and often has the implication of giving attendance and uh, attention to what is being said by obeying what is being said. That's where it's at. There is at least the implication here, as it was in the garden, that the men have abdicated their role as head and they were led by their wives when it says they listened to the voice of their wife. This does not mean, this does not mean, this does not mean we should not listen to our wives. So if you go home and tell your wife, don't talk to me, I'm not supposed to listen to you, that's you saying it, not pastor. Okay, so that's not what this means but only that we are to retain our roles as head of the family, listen, but then lead in a way that God would have us to go. But both Adam and Abram did not maintain their headship, and the consequences were disastrous in both cases. He drew back from leading, and he began to follow her, her direction. Maybe Abram was a little bit gun-shy after making some bad decisions, Maybe he was still smarting from his famine failure. Or possibly his suggestion that Eliezer, you know, it's 10 years now. Perhaps Abram did not want to stand on principle. Maybe he constantly, and and tell me if this doesn't ring in your own heart. Maybe he was constantly having this conversation with Sarai because Sarai was saying, how long? Where's the air? What's happening here? I mean, she was bearing a burden too, right? And he was constantly saying, God's word said, God's word said, 
God promised, I remember distinctly, he promised, Genesis 1, uh, 12, 1 through 3, and maybe he just got weary of saying God said, and he thought, well, maybe this is the way, I don't know. Whatever it be, he stepped back from his leadership role. He's 86 years old, and so it makes it 10 to 11 years since God's promise, and still without a son, without an heir. This was Abram's breach of faith, no doubt about it, as much as it was Sarai's. Now, because in the end, when he had grown and matured, I'm talking about Abram now, and his faith was mature to the point that he is willing to give Yahweh, the Lord, everything, including even his own son, the son of promise, Isaac. We read of his faith in Romans 4.18 as this kind of faith. In hope against hope, Abraham believed so that he might become the father of many nations according to that in which he had been spoken to, so will your descendants be without becoming weak in faith. Without becoming weak in faith, Abraham contemplated his own body at 100 years old, now as good as dead, since he was about 100 years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb, yet, contrast, yet, with respect to the promises of God, He did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God and being fully assured that what God had promised, he was able to perform. That's where Abraham lands. That's where he lands. That's where he ends, the friend of God, with that kind of faith. But he's not there during the story of Hagar, is he? Again, in Hebrews 11.19, we read, he considered that God is able to raise people even from the dead. Next week, we'll be talking about Isaac and that whole situation that he came into with Isaac. But now, he refused to lead, and he put everything into Sarai's hands. Because again, when the results of his obeying Sarai saw Hagar Pregnant, he answered Sarai's plea for him to deal with Hagar's insubordination and mocking and disrespect by saying, she's your maid. Deal with her. Deal with her. I don't want anything to do with this. That's not what Sarai was requesting of him. Not even close. Instead of leading out in the courage of his convictions, he stepped back from protecting and leading his wife. Not his best day. Not his best day. The consequences were monstrous. Now, we want to move into Hagar and her despair. Here's the first mention of the angel of the Lord. Look at verse 7. Now the angel of the Lord found her. He appears as one who is both, uh, he appears to one who is both a slave and a fugitive, that would be Hagar, indicating that he takes an interest in those who are downtrodden, those who are unnoticed, the little people. God has a special interest in them, and and even though they, they don't have a special claim on him, it seems when you read in the Bible that he does take special note of the poor. He's especially attentive to the cry of the distressed, David wrote about this in Psalm 34. He said, this poor man called and Yahweh heard him and saved him out of all of his troubles. You want a promise? You're facing some some problems? Right there you go. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He does not change. We studied that in our systematic theology class on Wednesday evenings the immutability of God. He doesn't change. Therefore, if you find yourself in profound need right here, right now, today, remember that this is his nature. Call out to him. He will hear you and he will meet your need. I can say that with with complete confidence because that is the character and nature of God. If you call out to him in sincerity, he will meet you. He may not give you the answer of what you think you want. He may 
adjust your thinking to what is his will, but he will answer you. Now, Sarai despised her mistress, excuse me, Hagar despised her mistress, Sarai, and she was mistreated because of it. When Abram gave her full reign, she mistreated Hagar, so much so that Hagar ran away from her mistress. But to where? Where did she end up? She was in the wilderness. And the barrenness of her situation matched the barrenness of Sarai's womb. She was a fugitive. She was a runaway. She was in despair and alone at a well. Now here's where it gets interesting. This is the sure end of all who raise up in pride and despise the blessings of God. How was she despising the blessings of God? She ran away from Sarai because Sarai was mistreating her. Makes sense, right? Never forget that she was in the home of God's friend. Never forget she was in the home of the chosen person that God decided the Messiah would come through. And attendant with being part of that household were manifold blessings. Plus, Abram was nobody to mess with. He just defeated five kings with his own little army. There was safety there. There was protection there. And Hagar ran away from it all. She spurned the very possibility that she was raising up an heir for Abram through Sarai's uh, uh, request. She must have known the story about Abraham and God and the promise that God made to him. She was in the household and obviously quite special because Sarai chose her as a surrogate. So I'm sure she knew all about the promise and the covenant of God and how it now had been 11 years and she didn't have an heir yet. That made sense to her. And oh my gosh, she's being chosen to be the surrogate for Abram? Well, she let that go to her head, didn't she? When she was pregnant, she vaunted herself over her mistress and despised her. And she had to run away. Something else in verse 7 is interesting. It says, now, the angel of the Lord. It's kind of like a snowfall in late spring. And we know what it's like up here, right? It's a clean blanket of unbroken white freshness covering the dirty and soiled snow of winter. You know how it gets in February, early March. It's just dirty. We're ready for spring. I don't know how God works that in us, right? We're almost ready, almost, almost ready for our first snowfall, right? And it's like magical. We hate winter. But the first snowfall, we're like, oh, isn't it beautiful? We get our clothes out and we get out and we want to go out and walk in it. That's what this verse reminds me of. It's that, that cleaning effect. And the Lord enters the narrative as the angel of the Lord, and he brings mercy and blessing onto an otherwise bleak display of human error having far-reaching consequences. Everything that takes place here, we're still experiencing today. I'll talk to you about that in a moment. Their faux pas, we're still suffering with today. First, Sarai blamed Yahweh, and then Abram, for a disappointment. Abram retreated behind his own passivity instead of leading and protecting his wife. And Hagar ran away from her only home and blessings as part of Abram's household. And now, the mother of his son, she sat in despair at a well on her way back to Egypt. But God, the angel of the Lord, entered the picture. It opens with that transitional marker in the narrative. Now, something different is going to happen here. After everything had transpired, now the angel of Yahweh comes. The angel of the Lord is the same one who will later appear in actual flesh and blood, not as an angel, but as God incarnate. I believe that this is a theophany or a pre-existent display of the second person of the Trinity in the form of the angel of the Lord. He appeared many times beforehand as the angel of the Lord. I take this as a very key term, the angel of the Lord. 
And Theophanes, or Christophanes, whatever you want to call them, that's theological jargon, is the appearance of Jesus Christ before his incarnation. We see it here. This is the first mention of it. But we also see it in Genesis 18, later when the angel of the Lord comes and appears to Abram and talks to him about what's going on in Sodom. And then we see it in Genesis 32, where Jacob wrestled with him. He wrestled with him. And if you read that account in Genesis 32, 24 through 25, I'm not going to go there. He, he asks his name, and he appeared to him as the angel of the Lord. And then also in Judges 13, we see another appearance of him. Uh, and he appeared to Manoah's wife to tell her that she'd give birth to Samson. All these are pre-incarnate uh, appearances of the Lord Jesus Christ. Very interesting. I want you to just track with me. He found Hagar. <laughs> See that? It says it right in verse 7. He found her by a spring of water. The great shepherd of our souls seeks those who are lost. He talked about leaving the 99 and going and looking for the one that was lost. He is the initiator. He is the one that found her. He finds those who are lost. Hagar wasn't seeking him any more than Adam and Eve after their sin sought him, but he found them. Adam? Adam, where are you? As if, right? He's God. Hagar! (laughs) He calls her by name. This is so amazing. He found her. And he found her at a well. Well, that's not symbolic at all, right? This is so close to the woman at the well in John 4, it's almost as if it's a rehearsal for that encounter. There the woman said of Jesus, he told me all the things that I have done. And he did, remember, because he asked her if she were married, and she said no, and he says, yep. You have answered correctly because you have had five husbands and the one with whom you are with now isn't your husband. So this woman was a player, right? And he just exposed it all to her, flat out. And here he is with Hagar as well. He called her by name. How personal is that? Hagar. And, and he knew her already because he identified her as Sarai's maid. He knew her from beginning to end. And I, I just can't get over this. He saw her. He saw her. Because that's a big thing in Hagar's mind. Because she is just little stuff, man. She was small people. She was a servant. And she was an Egyptian. And she's in Abram's household. And Yahweh, the angel of the Lord, saw her. He questioned her to help her condition. He wanted her to see her condition. So what's he say to her? He says, where are you coming from? She says, well, I ran away from Hagar. And he reminds her, you ran away from everything that I was trying to bless you with. Turn your back on that. They spurn things. Uh, this reminds me of children. Children often do this when they, they hit a certain age. They, they have been raised in nurture and admonition of the Lord and security of a family that loves them. And, and they reach a certain age and they just turn away from it all. They turn away from it all. The, they spurn the very blessings that God had provided for them and inevitably they find themselves like Hagar. In the end, they find themselves like Hagar. There is no other end for those who turn away from God. Alone, destitute, and in despair in the wilderness of their own desires. Yahweh said to Hagar, where have you come from and where are you going? Let's just do a little assessment here. Where have you come from? The house of blessing, Abraham's household. Where are you going? To Egypt. Egypt, 
is a symbol of the world everywhere in Scripture. And that's where she was heading. Consider, Hagar, where have you come from? And where are you going? Stop running for a moment and consider your situation, Hagar. The angel of Yahweh told her the only solution for her predicament was to return. Does that sound familiar? Have we talked about that before? Return. Not unlike Abraham with his epic famine fail, he returned, didn't he? He went back to where he started, to Bethel, where he began to build altars. And he returned to Yahweh. Hagar needed to return to her mistress and submit. Reminds me of Acts 3.19, where it says, What can someone alone in a distress do once God, once again, God in Acts 3.19 tells us, Repent and return. Turn around and go in the opposite direction that you're going. Repent and return. And he says what? So that your sins may be wiped away. This has a far-reaching eschatological or end times effect because he said then the refreshing times will come upon you again. And of course, this is talking about the millennial kingdom. But it's very true that those who repent and return will have their sins wiped away. That's how he forgives us our sins. And she, she named Yahweh. This Egyptian maid named Yahweh. It's the only place in scripture where a human being gives a name to God. What'd she call him? She called him the God who sees, El Roy. The God who sees. For she said, have I even remained alive after seeing him? She was so overcome with amazement that she confessed it was the living God who saw her. You see that? That's tied up in the word Berlahai Roy, which means the living God saw me. That's what they called the well that she was at thereafter. This is so amazing. His mercy is manifest in his interaction with Hagar. After admonishing her to return to her mistress and submit to her authority, the angel of the Lord promised that he was going to greatly multiply her descendants to be too many to account. Does that sound like anything? What is going on here? And then he he also told her what to name the child, Ishmael. But he prophesied there'd be a great conflict between him and his brothers. Really? Really? Beginning the animosity between Jew and Arabic nations because they all descend from Ishmael, all the Arabic nations. Ishmael's name means God hears and it's taken from this account. Because God saw and God heard. And Ishmael, like Jacob, the son of Isaac, received the blessing from Yahweh, and he would have 12 sons. God did this because of Abraham, according to Genesis 21, 13. Even though he wasn't the son of promise, he was still Abraham's son. It's kind of like these blessings just kind of overflow onto those that are around Abraham, let alone his own offspring. But Ishmael would be a wild donkey of a man. (laughs) Not a good thing. That is not a good thing. And his hand will be against everyone, and everyone's hand's going to be against him. And so his offspring came to be individualistic and aggressive, and they lived in defiance of all their relatives, according to Genesis 25, 18. Henry Morris comments this, the long history of the Arabic peoples who are all descended from Ishmael is an obvious commentary on the fulfillment of this ancient prophecy seen most vividly at present in the current Israeli-Arab hostilities. It's still going on today, people. Don't think that individual sins that you commit may not have long-reaching consequences. Are we forgiven? Absolutely, we're forgiven. But sin does bear a consequence, most intently on Jesus Christ, who died to forgive you those sins. There is therefore no condemnation on us who have 
believed and loved the Lord Jesus Christ. But sin still brings consequences. Now, this is not the last time that Hagar would find herself in exile. In Genesis 21, 9 through 20, we read that Hagar was ultimately exiled from the family because her son, the wild donkey of a man, mocked the son of promise, Isaac. And once again, destitute, alone, and in despair, she had to leave Abraham's blessing because of her mocking, her son mocking Isaac this time, like mother like son, right? She despised Sarah, and now he despises Isaac. She lifted up her voice and wept in her despair once again, and the angel of God called the Hagar from heaven. What mercy! She's in exile because of her son's rotten behavior towards the son of promise, and she cries out bitterly, and the angel of God, The angel of God calls out to her, What's the matter with you, Hagar? Do not fear. I got you. Don't fear. Now, I don't believe for a moment that she's saved. I don't believe for a moment that she converted because her history doesn't show us that. She ended up living separated from the Israelites. She ended up living uh, in a way that I don't believe was pleasing to God. She got her son, Ishmael, a wife, from Egypt, the world. But he delivered her, didn't he? He saved her and rescued her again from her physical predicament. That is mercy, people. That is mercy. Now, even though this chapter didn't specifically focus on Abraham, and we're studying the life of Abraham, it most certainly gave us some insight into those around him and how he interacted with them he still worked with Abram, even though he had failures. And, and, and God still worked with Sarai. And, and he even still worked with Hagar. And that makes me just want to run to Isaiah 55. Immediately when I read that, I just think of Isaiah 55. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return to Yahweh and he have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. And this part especially, my thoughts are not your thoughts. Nor are your ways my ways, declares Yahweh. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. You cannot put God in a box. And this is a problem that I have with denominations and slogans and, and, and little fetishes that we get as Christian people. Be careful. God is not able to be put in a box as though he's tame or, or that you could actually comprehend God. He's so far behind, uh, beyond us. So far beyond us. And, and, and there's much glory that we can give him in allowing him to be great. To be God. To be greater than our little pea brain can identify him as being. Leave your heart and mind open that God can do amazing things far beyond what you think he's capable of because he's God. Today we've heard of God's rich mercy poured out on a slave woman, a fugitive, Hagar. She was found by God when she wasn't looking for him. And her life was revolutionized by his discovery of her. He saw her and he helped her, albeit in her physical situation. I don't think in the spiritual situation, but he did see her and his mercy, his common grace was shed upon her. Now you may wonder what this has to do with you. How can you relate to this story from the Old Testament? Well, quite simply, we're all slaves and fugitives from God until he finds us, right? And every once in a while we slip back into that mode of running from him as a fugitive, even after we're saved, because we're sinful creatures. 
We don't seek him because none seek him, not even one. Everyone born under the sun have turned away from him, and everyone has become useless, not one. No one does good, not even one. Paul teaches us in Romans. And God touches us and says, come. Why do you turn away? Why do you keep doing what you know is wrong and going in a way that you know is wrong? Return and receive him as your savior or reaffirm him as your Lord. He finds us and we're left just standing in awe, our mouths open with no words coming out, but thinking together with the Apostle Paul, oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How unfathomable are his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has become his counselor, or who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that you are greater than our minds can comprehend. We thank you that your mercy goes places we would never think it would go. To one such as Hagar, a little person, a slave, a fugitive, an Egyptian. Father, help us not to shorten your arm. Help us not to draw a circle around you and say you can do this and no more. And Father, help us to take these truths and apply them to our own lives when we fail you and think that we are just unredeemable. It's not true. It's not true. Thank you that you are such a God. In Jesus' name, amen.